Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode, we look at the new changes and proposed new rules underway in U.S. banking, what it means for consumers and investors, and how it could impact interest rates. The rules could have sweeping and negative implications for a host of banking activities, from mergers and acquisitions and trading to small business lending and more. Dick Beauvais says the rules do not bode well for bank stocks. Could the changes underway usher in a new era for the U.S. Treasury markets? We'll look at that. Dick will share his insights on the Senate banking hearings in Washington. He has the latest numbers on the U.S. money supply. And he'll explain why there is a striking $4 trillion difference between the Fed's tally and the Odeon money supply measure. We look at the latest inflation and jobs numbers and where next on interest rates. Matt Van Alstyne has strong words of criticism on stock buybacks and much more. And we look across the globe from Russia and Ukraine and further afield to the installation of a new president in Argentina. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstyne, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 99. Uh, We're going to talk about the latest inflation numbers, the unemployment numbers, the labour data. We're going to look at the Senate hearings last week, the money supply. We're going to look at global events. And we even have a a segment on education. There's been quite a few pieces out there on it lately. Makes for, well, gives us pause on maybe where we're headed in America. Uh, the inflation numbers that came out this morning, Dick and Matt, your take, CPI today at 3.1%, that's for November for the year, and just up 01 for the month. You know, I think the inflation numbers, uh, you know, are good uh, in the sense that uh, they are what was expected. Uh, and what was expected is that inflation is coming down. Uh, obviously, I haven't had a chance to go through the detailed, uh, you know, sector by sector numbers. But in terms of the overall numbers, uh, they are where people expected them to be, uh, but not below what was expected. And the market's a little disappointed, I guess, that they weren't lower than what was expected. But, you know, they show the general trend in inflation is down. And I think that's very positive. In December, we, we brought this up before, Powell said the Fed was likely done on interest rates, but he struck a cautious note back then, giving the Fed, it seemed to me anyway, some wiggle room uh, to cut or raise rates. So we're not exactly sure where this is headed. Uh, the market seems to be pricing in rate cuts next year at some point. 
Well, the market is definitely placing in uh, the market is is basically it's a battle among uh, people who do this to determine who's going to come with the biggest lowest number for rates in 2024. They all seem to be saying, oh, it's going to be January. It's going to be March, going to be May. And then other people are coming and saying it's it's going to be, you know, 130 points. It's going to be uh, five, uh, you know, 250 points. So, I mean, everybody is convinced that the Fed is going to cut rates very dramatically uh, in 2024. Uh, and I think the best indicator that we have is uh, the yield on the two-year bonds, uh, because the yields on the two-year bonds are basically, uh, you know, leading the Fed, in my view, and I think in the view of a lot of other people. And the gap between uh, the yield and the two-year bonds and the uh, Federal Reserve rate is so big right now that uh, you would think there's going to be a, a rate cut in 2024. I just want to say one thing about the inflation number. You know, I, I've, I'm like you, Dick. I haven't totally analyzed it, but I glanced at it, and one number stuck out at me that I, I think is worth paying attention to, and it's the core services X housing. So basically, the services index, which jumped 0.44% on the last month on an annualized basis, that's 5.3%. It's pretty rare to see core services X housing be above the headline number. So I just want to point that out, that there there might be a little bit more heat um, there, because I've, I've been saying for a while that the, the housing portion is what's driving the inflation. But if this number is accurate, um, it probably is reflecting wage increases, which you know is, is the dreaded feedback loop the policymakers are trying to avoid. What I've done, hopefully we'll talk about this in a little while, but I've uh, recast the uh, monetary, the money figures. You know, in other words, you know, the Federal Reserve puts out its number as to what money is. And I put out, you know, what I like to call the Odeon Capital uh, money supply. And there's a huge difference between the two numbers. Uh, The money supply calculated the way, you know, I did it adds back the $100,000 deposits adds back the uh, money in a money market mutual fund that are institutional, which the Fed does not count. The difference is $4 trillion. In other words, the money supply of the United States, uh, if we look at it the way I think it should be looked at, is $4 trillion bigger than the money supply as the way the Federal Reserve calculates it. The other thing which is significantly different is that the um, money supply, uh, I'm going to call the Odeon money supply figures, have not gone down, whereas the Federal Reserve money supply figures have gone down. If one should look at the money supply the way I'm thinking we should, and and by the way, I, I haven't come up with this definition of money out of thin air. This is the way we looked at it you know, yeah. decades ago before they changed all the numbers. If we look at it the way they looked at it decades ago, money supply hasn't come down. There should be, you know, inflationary pressure from that. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's what you, you, you're picking up, Matt. But uh, So we, we could talk about that. So there's a four, literally a $4 trillion difference between your numbers, the Odeon numbers, and the Feds. That's extraordinary. Yeah, well, well that's 20%. Mm. It's a 20% difference. It shows that the Fed number went up dramatically, you know, during the pandemic and then is coming down, whereas the money supply number that we use, you know, went up gradually and is not coming down. So I think our number is far more accurate than than uh, the one that the Fed puts out. And what is the difference? The Fed takes currency that's out in existence. We take currency out in existence. The Fed takes bank deposits 
but it will not take bank deposits above $100,000. We take all bank deposits. The Fed takes money in the retail money market funds. We take that number, plus we add money in the institutional money market funds. So in other words, we're saying there's no difference between a dollar if it's in a $50,000 account and a $120,000 account. And there's no difference between a dollar if it's in a retail money market fund or if it's in an institutional money market fund. That's the way they used to look at it. If we think that that's still the way it should be looked at, the money supply has not gone down. We'll pick that up in a moment, Dick. We need to drill into that. Your quick take on the labor numbers, the unemployment rate fell to 3.7% from 39 in October. That was distorted by the auto workers strike and more workers coming back in. It's very difficult to sometimes read these numbers. The latest job report said 190,000 jobs added in October, seasonally adjusted. That was slower than earlier in the year. But then excluding the auto workers strike, uh, the November gains were actually 169,000. Uh, The Fed is probably saying this is all headed in the right direction. Well, yeah, but again, these labor numbers are very difficult for me to swallow because, as I said, you know, every month when we discuss them, they're just not accurate. Uh, And the reason why I say it's not accurate because the the Department of Labor said that in the month of November, the uh, job increase was 199,000 if you use talking to companies, and you seasonally adjust the number. The Labor Department also says that if you talk to households and you seasonally adjust the number, the increase was 747000 Now, how can that be? How can they tell us, on one hand, that it's 199000 and say this is an accurate number, and on the other hand, say it's 747000 and this is an accurate number, I mean, and, and and then, you know, we're supposed to ex- believe that these numbers, you know. Yeah. Are- I would point out that those two numbers do converge through revisions over time. And generally speaking, the um, the the census one, which is the one that is, I believe, a couple million jobs below the uh, the survey number, it has to close the gap somehow. And so in some ways, you kind of expect months like this where, where the survey number is five or 600,000 jobs under uh, the, the census number because they have to converge and eventually they will converge, um, whether it's through revisions or phantom rogue <laughs> reports like this one that kind of come out of left field and, and kind of leave you scratching your head. But I agree, we, we're, we're always kind of scratching our head when we're looking at these because it just doesn't match one the sentiment you know the wall street journal had a, rep- uh, a poll out there just sent you know measuring employees sentiment and and their voter sentiment and you know the the yeah. survey says that people are unhappy with the job market and yet you know if, historically 3.7 percent unemployment is usually the type of number you see when everyone feels really really good about the job market and so it, the numbers aren't lining up with at least people's feelings and the way the economy is talked about in in the political world can we take these job opening numbers seriously dick and matt uh, in april 2022 there were 12.4 million job openings in america today there are 8.7 million so we've lost 4 million and the unemployment rate is down are job openings to be taken on face value or are they just literally openings postings that for jobs that may be phantom jobs well as we talked about last week you know i i'm, I'm not going to defend the job opening number because i think it's uh, spurious also i go back to the unemployment claims number the unemployment claims number I do take seriously 
<clears throat> but only the four-week average. And that's showing that more people, you know, are looking for jobs. Not not very much more, but some more people are looking for jobs. And it's also showing that people are having a harder time getting off unemployment. Yeah. All right. In addition to which, anecdotal information is now coming out again about companies that are firing people. In other words, each each morning, if you turn on CNBC, they tell you how many, you know, this company's fired people, that company's fired people. Uh, and, and so we're back to seeing uh, announcements of uh, major firings, you know, thousands of people being laid off. With the job, the unemployment numbers are showing that uh, the unemployment claims numbers are showing uh, a weakening, not a very big one, but a weakening. The jolts number, which I refuse to defend, is showing a huge drop. You know, as you just indicated, John, it's a huge drop in the number. The, the stated number, I mean, I, I don't know how to, you know, come to grips with the fact that the government is saying it's 200, 199,000 jobs created. No, no, it's not 199,000, it's 747,000. And then everybody has to pick their favorite number. So, uh, but I think, I think we are seeing a slowing in the increase in jobs. And I do think we're starting to see a tiny increase in unemployment. And I think that that's uh, concerning. Last week, we had the annual Senate bank hearings. Uh, you were listening in, Dick. You say that this year's hearings were different than hearings we had in the past because this year, most of the discussion was focused on the new bank regulations. And there was some sideshows. Uh, Elizabeth Warren got in about crypto and she had a sympathetic voice from Jamie Dimon, mostly on the new bank regulations. Th these are the Basel three endgame proposals, just to give it a clear title. Well, before I, I talk about that, let's let's go back a second to what happened in 2023, which led to the creation of this uh, thousand eighty-seven page document uh, in terms of new regulations. Um, and, and what happened was in March of 2023, uh, four banks went under. All right. They didn't go under for traditional reasons. In other words, they didn't go under because they had made a lot of bad loans. There's no indication whatsoever that that happened. They didn't go under because the uh, business market that they were trying to survey uh, or, or supply uh, funds to stop, you know, the demand for funds. That didn't happen. They didn't go under because back in the days when, uh, you know, banking was a little bit wilder, managements had taken some different approach or marketing approach, which created a problem. In other words, there was nothing that happened in March of 2023 that would say that these banks were in trouble, that these banks were not collecting interest on their loans, that these banks were running uh, themselves in an improper fashion. So what did happen? The interest rates went up. The value of a bunch of bank assets were calculated as going down. A bunch of money managers took a look at that and said that the, these banks are insolvent and they started a run on the banks. That run on the banks was stopped when the United States government got up and said, you know, President of the United States said, we will protect every dollar in deposits in every bank in the United States. Okay. And what happened was the, the, the Federal Reserve actually had to come up with $220 billion in May of this year to give to the FDIC to protect against these bank failures. 
All right. Last week, all that money had been paid back. All that money that the FDIC had laid out was paid back. The amount of money that the Federal Reserve had outstanding on these loans was zero. So what does that tell you? It tells you that this panic in March of last year was false. It was a false panic. And and more to support the argument that it was a false panic is that in all of these thousand page rules that just came out, they're allowing the banks to do what was done in March, and they're not forcing them to change their accounting. Because there is no payment problem in the banking industry. There is no traditional problem that would drive banks under. And the reason why you went from $220 billion in loans down to zero in what was six months, May, the end of May to the beginning of December, was because there's so much liquidity out there in the marketplace. It shouldn't have happened. It was not managed properly by the government. It was not managed properly by the banking regulators, but it happened. And as a result of it happening, the regulators sat down and said, and this gets to your, to your thoughts, John, the regulators get sat down and said, okay, we're going to create all of these rules. We're going to create these rules, which are going to change the banking system so that there's no risk. There was no risk back then. There was no risk. All right. But they want to create all these rules that, that are going to eliminate the risk that didn't exist, you know, back in March of last of this year. And, you know, the bankers are now screaming because these rules are so, so strong and they're going to penalize. The banks will be driven out of making home mortgages if these rules go through. The banks won't be able to make, you know, small business loans if they go through, the, unless the small business loan is backed by an asset. The, the banks won't be able to trade the way they traded in the past. The banks won't be able to assist the um, merger and acquisition industry the way they have in the past. All this will change because of these rules. That will harm the growth of the economy. So now getting to, finally to what you said, the Senate has these hearings, right? And every Republican senator gets up and says, this makes no sense. You shouldn't be increasing the capital of the banking industry because you're going to hurt the economy, because you're going to force the banks to contract. This should not be done. The Democrats, who you would normally expect would, would disagree 100% with what the Republicans said, they didn't disagree. You know, they made statements about, well, we want safer banks, but they didn't disagree. So now we're sitting here, false crisis, big panic in the markets, $220 billion laid out by the Federal Reserve, all of which has now been paid back, right? You know, a new set of rules that are going to hit the banking industry. It's going to hurt the economy. It's going to hurt the banking industry. It's going to hurt small businesses. It's going to hurt, you know, home building. And yet it looks like it, it's going to happen. So why, why in heaven's name is this thing going to happen if all of the things I just said are even remotely close to being true, although obviously I think they're true. You know, and basically the reason is because the bank, the government understands it cannot guarantee every dollar of deposits in the banking system and it's on the hook for doing so. So their conclusion is we got to shrink the banks. We got to shrink the uh, risk assets in the banks and we're going to do it. No matter why what. is this different than any other time? I mean, there's never been a moment in history probably in any country in the world where the banking insurance has enough money to, to insure every single deposit. That's not how insurance works in, in house insurance. That's not how it works in 
you know, car insurance. And it's not how it works in bank insurance. It, it It's supposed to be a money for the marginal banks that don't make it, not for the entire system. I agree. But that's not what the president said. He just said, we're going to insure bank. Mm. We're going to insure all of the dollars for every American that has a dollar in the banking system. But, but, but you don't need, what I'm saying is, even if you are insuring every dollar in the banking system, that doesn't implicitly mean every bank's going to fail at the exact same moment. You don't have to, you know, reserve for that. It, it's it's marginal banks that fail from time to time. Yeah, well, you got to talk to the Fed. Because basically <laughs> I'm just saying like I think I think that might be aspirational and it kind of is inflammatory to say yes, the the banking system insurance, you know, FDIC does not have enough money to insure every single depositor, but they actually do. I mean, you only have to have enough money to reasonably in you know cover certain bank failures not not under the scenario where okay let you know that that would be like having your home insurance market be regulated on the basis that let's just assume that every house in Florida burns at the exact same night can the banking can the insurance system handle that no well of course not it's, it's there to you know like historically there's a percentage of houses that burn so maybe you have you you withhold enough cash for for those houses plus twenty percent historically, so you have a little bit of wiggle room. And if it goes beyond that, then you have to go into reinsurance. And and for the FDIC's purposes, if it goes beyond that, they have to you know go to the taxpayer and and maybe get reimbursed from banks from the banking system in the future. But but it's it seems aspirational and a little bit misplaced to think that they have to have reserves for every single dollar of deposit. I, I it just seems kind of not in line with reality because the reality is is that not every bank will fail at the exact same moment and mm. and the other thing is is when banks fail the insurance really covers the the spread the gap between their assets and their liabilities you know and so like svb I, i'm i'm just gonna make the number up but but i think that i read that if they had to liquidate and they didn't have fdic insurance eventually depositors would get somewhere between 90 to 95 cents on the dollar and so the fdic is really stuck covering you know that 10 to 5 5 to 10 cent spread so even even in the situations where banks have failed you're not looking at covering 100% on the dollar in terms of their depositors uh, you're obviously absolutely correct but that's not what the regulators agree with all right and the regulators are calling the shots so the net effect is if the regulators understood what you said which was co absolutely correct they wouldn't have written a 1,087-page document with a whole bunch of regulations to shrink the banking system, all right? But they did it. And the fact is that now that's going to be debated for at least the next six months, and a large portion of these regulations are going to go through. In addition to which, a whole bunch of banks are going to, um, you know, basically, you in the fourth quarter earnings, you're going to see a whole bunch of banks taking write-offs so that when these rules, if they go into effect the way everybody expects, you know, they'll be positioned not to be harmed by the new rules. What you say is correct, but 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 only one difference I would make. The FDIC didn't come up with a dime when the uh, the banks went under in, in March. The Federal Reserve came up with 100% of that money, which it loaned to the FDIC because the FDIC does not have $220 billion. And the FDIC, therefore, has paid it all back to the Federal Reserve and the FDIC was able to pay it back because there was enough liquidity. They could sell First Republic to uh, J.P. Morgan. They could sell the assets of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, to First Citizens. They could sell, you know, the signature loans to, uh, you know, or bonds or loans to to other buyers. Although there's a conflict on that right now. A, you're right. You're not going to see all the banks go under at the same time. 
B, if they do go down at the same time, the Federal Reserve does have the ability to cover, you know, what might be a very small percentage of this money going down. But C, the regulators don't accept that argument, all right? And because they don't accept that argument, they've written this massive amount of rules. Uh, these rules, if they go into effect, have the effect that uh, all the senators understood they were going to have, all of the uh, bankers understand they were going to have, but it looks like the government's going to do it anyway. I'm kind of baffled here, Dick, because if all the Republicans are against the new regulations and Democrats are siding with the Republicans, or many Democrats, there's no political capital for these rules. So how could they possibly succeed? Are the regulators overriding Congress? It doesn't make sense to me. The regulators do not have to ask Congress anything about establishing bank regulations. In other words, the Federal Reserve was set up as an independent entity, even though it's we can argue about whether it's independent or not. But the point is that it was set up as an independent en entity. Uh, there was a, a person set up within the Federal Reserve, in this case, a guy named Michael Barr, who is the uh, vice chairman in charge of bank regulation. And he came up with these rules. The FDIC came, agreed with them. The Office of the Control of the Currency agreed with them. So now, you know, the Congress has nothing to say. They can yell yep. and scream, jump up and down. If they don't like these rules, they can pass a law indicating that they want to change. But the likelihood of this Congress passing any law on anything is, is fairly yep. remote. But they're definitely not going to pass a law on bank regulation. These rules, in your estimation, are not good for bank stocks. No, they're terrible. Yeah, uh, because what they're saying is that uh, the market that the banks can sell its product to has been reduced substantially. The cost of selling products into that market has been would be increased substantially. Not only would the banks have access to a smaller portion of the financial system, but the cost of getting at the financial system would put them at a competitive disadvantage to com to foreign banks and to non banks to the capital markets, to the uh, non-bank financial companies. So yeah, these these rules these rules are very negative for for the banking industry. There's no no question about that. I saw a number that it increases capital requirements for banks by 20% or more. 25%. Yeah. 25%. Okay. Yeah. That's that's a big hit. Yeah, of course it's a big hit. <clears throat> it raised the questions as to why were these banks in the first place buying back all the stock? We wrote year after year after year, banks should never buy back their stock because they're reducing their capital. And in bad times, when they're, when it's evidence that they reduce their capital, by doing this, there will be a demand for them to increase their capital. It's happened every recession. It's happened every time, You know, at least since I've been doing this, which is 55 years. The fact that it's happening again right now is not surprising. What is surprising is that these bankers completely completely ignore the fact that this is going to happen whenever a recession occurs and they go out and they buy all the stock under a theory that it's going to increase the value of the price of the stock which it did not do so uh it is it is amazing it is amazing that you you would think systems would no not go that far yeah. off track when you talk about banks and stock buybacks, it just it got my blood boiling because that is true about every company. I mean, you go and look at all the companies that have gone bankrupt, like like Bed Bath and Beyond. I remember looking that you know they did more stock buybacks in their the eighteen months before they went bankrupt than the amount of debt that they filed for bankruptcy on. And I I don't know what needs to be done. I'm you know I'm, I'm a free market 
person. I believe in 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 capitalism and stuff, but I feel like the entire system, including banks, gets distorted by the way executives are compensated and they get uniquely incentivized to do stock buybacks as a way to juice the the price of their stocks to increase their stock options earnings. And and there's just something fundamentally wrong when you know it's the preferred method of it's almost like a hidden um incentive to do stock buybacks instead of investing in the companies and investing in opportunities on behalf of the shareholders or finding cheap acquisitions and doing like hard work. It's just, I don't know if it's the lazy man's way of inflating your stock price to get your your share count lower and, and your stock options worth more. But I think there's something systemically wrong in our capitalist system where that is the preferred means because I feel like it's just endemic when companies go bankrupt or need to be bailed out. You can almost for sure go back, you know, just a handful of years and say, hey man, if you hadn't done that stock buyback at the peak, um, you'd be in a much better place today. And I just, I, I don't think it's just only in the banks. And I, that's, I guess that's what I want to say is it's not banks only, but it, it's disgusting. Take a look at it. The uh, fact of the matter is that uh, in, in the uh, last year, in the last five years, you know, the uh, CEOs of these banking companies were paid tens of millions of dollars every year for what they did in running the company. They were paid based upon the return on equity, the return on assets, return on tangible common equity, which is this false number they come up with, and they made fortunes. They made, uh, you're not going to find a bank CEO that didn't make $100 million in the last, uh, you know, five to 10 years, right? At the same time, the shareholders got screwed because the bank stocks over the last five years have gone down in every year except one in that five-year period. So, the, the boards of directors and the managements get together and say, if you create a high return on equity number, we'll give you $25, $30 million in pay. You know, if you don't do that, we won't give you that much. The fact that the stock went down, the fact that the company's earnings didn't go up, the fact that uh, these other factors were in play doesn't matter. And what you said is it's disgusting and you're exactly correct. It is disgusting and it's wrong. And what makes it worse for banks than other companies is that other companies don't sell money and capital is money. So if you give away the money in a bank, you're reducing the ability of the bank to do business. That is a bigger hit to bank profit than to, to banks than it is to other companies that are selling real products, not selling money. You, you can't reduce the money that a bank has and tell it to go out and sell more money because it can't be done. They actually harm the bank. The bank stocks did not go up. Their pay soared. And, and yeah. that, that's just not right. Well, you've made the point repeatedly, Dick, that bank stocks have been underperforming or they've been poor performers for the past six, seven or since we've had this market rally. They're a disaster. And then you have this quote unquote disgusting behavior in stock buybacks. I mean, they're le it's legal, obviously, but not a good practice in your view or Matt's view. Congress is moving on it also because uh, there, there, there have been more than one bill introduced that would uh, tax companies for the amount of the buyback. In other words, if the company buys back the stock, they, the Congress wants to tax the money that was used to buy back the stock. The theory being that if you're taxing that money, then the, then the buybacks will stop. But that's that's not going to get passed either. Anyway, the, the bottom line is that um, if, if the banks don't amass additional capital, they are slowing their secular growth rate because that's what they're selling. They're selling capital, which they leverage, which they then you know, remanufacture into loans 
and they and they and they rent that money out. And if you start at the base and you get rid of the capital at the base, you know you can't leverage it for that much. You can't lend out that much. You don't get that recurring revenue stream that much. And you know you pay the CEO more money. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Some of the CEOs at, at the Senate hearings mentioned that the cost of lending will go up. Interest rates will rise if they have less money to lend out. And then there's the other issue of shadow banking and unregulated banking, uh, tighter lending conditions. And we, that's the last thing we want to see if the economy has a recession or has a downturn. Yeah, the reason that they say that is because uh, as a result of this FDIC insurance that people think exists, right? Banks can borrow money at a lower price than anyone in the world, including the United States government. The United States government cannot borrow money at the same price that banks do, because you and I have both, you know, loaned money to the banks, put deposits in banks, and gotten, you know, a half of one percent, a quarter of one percent, uh, or in, in many in, in many cases with your checking account, zero. So that's that money that we give or lend to the banks, which they call deposits. You know, that money that we lend and give to the banks, you know, is basically reloaned out at, you know, some spread at, at a major profit. If you reduce the amount of capital or you force the banks to have more capital for every dollar they take in, they can borrow less money. They can't grow their deposits as much. They can't, you know, uh, you know, lend as much. So they're going to increase the price of a loan to make up for what they're losing in the volume, uh, you know, it's volume versus price. In this business, like anywhere else, they're going to increase the price of a loan to make up for the volume reduction caused by the need for them to hold more capital. Can, can uh, I have a, a, a conspiracy theory question answered? Is is this possibly a way of getting them to switch from loans to the public to investing in the U.S. Treasuries because the Treasury is out there looking and saying, "Hey, we need we need to find a lot of buyers because we're we're doing two trillion dollars of debt a year nowadays." So so we need to we need to force banks into buying, or is that just me being crazy? Oh, it's absolutely right. I mean, there's no question about it because they go further than that. I mean, the the, the regulators say there's something called high quality liquid assets, right? Mm. High quality liquid assets are treasuries or money that you invest at the Federal Reserve. So what the what the, what the regulations do is they give the banks tremendous incentive to put the money into treasuries and to put the money into, uh, you know, what are called federal funds, you know, to deposit them with the Federal Reserve because they don't charge them any capital cost, and, and I don't want to make this too co complicated. But you know, there is a capital cost on every loan that they make. If you get loan the money to the United States, the capital cost is zero. If you put the money in the Federal Reserve, it's a capital cost of zero. If you loan money on a highly leveraged loan on a big takeover, the capital cost is a hundred percent. It isn't a, a conspiracy. It's a reality. It's huh. what it is. What the what is being done? The government wants the banks to lend their money to the government, and they're doing things that make that mandatory. What what's the um the calculation if you're doing AAA mortgage securities? Is are, are those equivalent to treasuries, or do they get a haircut? They used to they used to be very close to treasuries uh, because the capital cost on making a single family home mortgage was pretty close to, to nothing. It wasn't nothing. It, it was 50%, uh, you know, risk-weighted asset situation. What the new rules say is, if you're going to make a loan that has lower than an 80% loan-to-value ratio, 
in other words, the, the buyer of the house is putting up less than 20%, then you don't get this benefit of low capital cost. If you make what is a jumbo loan, which would be a home that sells for $750,000, a million dollars, or whatever it is, it's city by city, it changes, you know, you're going to get a full cost. But the real sticker, all right, is if you make a loan to someone and two years later, that person defaults on the loan, the new regulations state that you have to forgive them because you should never have made the loan in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's true. In other words, the banks are being told, I mean, you, you know, banks used to make 80% of the mortgages in the United States. They now make, you know, less than 50. They make something on the order of 40%. And it's because of this, you know, consumer financial protection rule, which basically says, don't lend money to people who can't pay it back. And so you lend someone a money, money, they buy a house, they lose their job, they, they have a huge medical bill, and they can't pay the loan back. And the government says, if, if, the, if the homeowner is smart, they'll say, the bank should never have loaned me the money in the first place, and the loss backs the, backs the homeowner. That seems like that could be exploited on purpose. Yeah, it could be. But but the fact of the matter is that the banks are not going to let you exploit it on purpose. They're just not going to make the loans. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what the banks want is they want to have uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac own the loans. They're willing to originate the loans, but they don't want to hold them on their own balance sheet. Because then if Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac hold them, then Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was supposed to have done its underwriting. You can't say that the bank should never have loaned the money because you sold the loans to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And then it gets more complicated because the government owns Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. All right. So, you know, it, it's, it's a very unvirtuous circle. It is harming the housing market. It is a factor in whether housing can ever recover, not the fact that, not that I believe it has to recover, but the point is, um, it, the system, the system is so complex, so convoluted, so filled with laws and regulations that it does hurt the consumer. In, in fairness, Dick, uh, the banks have raised their interest rates on some deposits, but I was just thinking to myself, they need to burnish their image, maybe start giving out toasters again to make customers feel happy. Toasters, is it the toasters are gone? <laughs> they want money. They don't want toasters. <laughs> Picking up on your numbers for the Federal Reserve, Odeon has a money supply calculation. And you mentioned there earlier, Dick, that there's a $4 trillion difference between the Odeon numbers and the Fed's numbers. I want to read something before we get to that, which kind of cuts into it. It's by Joseph Sternberg. He writes the political economics column in the Wall Street Journal, and his most recent one spoke to something that you've studied quite um, closely. He asks, why does the central bank leave balance sheet projections out of its quarterly communications if they're so important? He says the embarrassing answer is that the Fed doesn't really understand how its balance sheet works as a policy lever, then goes on to say central bank officials' explanations off and justifications for quantitative easing have shifted in kaleidoscopic fashion over the years. The inability to settle on a theory of what QE does to the economy and how it does it has 
thwarted any discussion of what the Fed should say about the policy. And it's headlined, the Federal Reserve has an $8 trillion secret. Clearly, they're puzzling us about the money supply because you've found a $4 trillion difference. And what he says is exactly correct. All right. In other words, I think, you know, I didn't read the article, but the way you've expressed what he said is I agree with him more than 100 percent. You know, the, the Federal Reserve is losing money, right? It, it loses about $10 billion a quarter. Actually, it's lost as much as $30 billion a quarter, but I'm estimating $10 billion because interest rates have uh, have come down. The other point is that the, the Fed doesn't have any equity either. In other words, if you mark to market the value of the securities that the Fed owns, it doesn't mark them. It, 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 it means that there is no common equity or no equity in, in the Federal Reserve. So you've got, a, it, it, you've got an entity which has managed itself in such a fashion that it's losing billions of dollars and it has no equity, and we're letting that entity run the financial system. Uh, you know, there's something wrong there also, you know, because um, I don't want to say everything's wrong everywhere. But the point- <laughs> A little positivity point, here, Dick. <laughs> that's right. But the point is that uh, you brought that article up. The guy is right. And I I think that, uh, you, know, you know, understanding what the Fed does is, is something which you would think given the fact that everybody is writing about it every day, myself included, that they would get a better understanding of the balance sheet. They would get a better understanding of uh, what it means when the balance sheet shrinks. They would get a better understanding of what Matt said last week, of what they're doing with, with reverse repos to uh, avoid you know, printing money. Uh, so, you know, not, none of that stuff is, is being discussed, and it all has a huge impact on, you know, the money supply, the financial system, the economy, which is, I guess, what that guy is saying, uh, and, and I agree with him. Quite a lot of focus in the past week on education in America at different levels. Some of it got pretty hot and um, controversial. We had the hearings, of course, in Washington. Also, there's been some new reports out on uh, college-educated kids and AI and uh, who's getting degrees now and the maybe the deterioration in the U.S. education system. What's your thoughts on that, Dick and Matt? Because we don't have a strong educated workforce, whether in the trades or coming out of college or just practical skills, reading, writing, and math. We don't have an economy. Well, The Economist magazine did a, a, a major study, uh, which it uh, talked about in last week's edition, not, the, not, not this week, the week before, in which they, uh, they discovered that AI hits the college educa educated person much harder than it hits the uh, person in the in, in the trades, right? In other words, the fireman is not being hurt by you know AI because he's got to go and put out the fire, you know, and AI can't do it for him. Whereas you know the, the college person who has a middle management job at uh, you know IBM or XYZ Corporation, his job is being eliminated. So. That's the first issue. Uh, the second issue is that because more people want to be because the system uh, demands a college education to get to the middle management position at IBM, um, you know the colleges have a, a a lock. They they have a control on on uh, the mechanism that that allows people to get these jobs, and they charge you know these horrendous fees. In order for that to, in order for you to get that diploma, which gets you that middle management job at uh, IBM, and yet the fireman, 
uh, his salary is is going up, and he doesn't need to to pay these outrageous fees to to universities. And if what the Economist is saying, uh, the Economist magazine is saying is true, you know, the gap between the college educated person and the tradesperson is is shrinking, yeah. uh, and and the tradesperson person is in in stronger position to hold on to his job because he's doing something which is labor intensive that AI cannot cannot eliminate. Not so with the college educated person. Not to mention the fact that the colleges keep reducing the the number of days that you go to school and uh, increasing the number of days that you watch your, 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 your studies on, on, on a computer, actually eliminate the number of days that college is open, and they keep increasing their prices. Yeah. I mean, they, they're in such, they're so horrible in terms of their control of, of, of this system. And maybe what AI is going to do, among other things, is create all of these uh, universities that you see advertised on television that are not charging eighty thousand dollars in tuition uh, per year uh, and another twenty to twenty five thousand in living expenses. System is out of whack. It's called the college experience, Dick. <laughs> yeah, I know. I That's an expensive experience. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> I had more fun when I was in college. Everywhere, <laughs> ever, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting just to to notice that you know the all the technologies you know when I was growing up I watched a cartoon called the Jetsons you know and in the future you know it, it, it the Jetsons imagined flying cars and and you know robots that that did your laundry and and made your food and you know we're going to get AI instead and no one ever really thought of that and and you know the conventional wisdom has always been college jobs are safe and if you go back through every recession I've ever studied the unemployment rate is usually spiking, you know, across the nation, but it's spiking at a, lot, a much greater degree amongst non-college graduates. And you know, for the first time, a technology is here that has the—at least it's on the cusp of being here—that has the potential of disrupting college jobs. You know, it's kind of a brave new world, and I—I yeah. I, I don't know that anyone is really ready for what actually will happen. Um, you know, I—I I don't know if you saw that Sports Illustrated got busted for using something like sixty percent of their authors were. AI generated, including the picture and the biography and all that. Mm. And when it came, you know, they got away with it for months and months. And then when it came out, they were doing it, it embarrassed them. And people were like, no, I want to read from real people. But I, I think it's going to, you know, kind of just be mission creep over time that you'll you'll get used to it. And, I, you know, I saw yesterday on Twitter, I saw someone was posting a video of a, a drive through restaurant that had a big sign saying, you know, Please speak your order and speak clearly because you're speaking to an AI machine that will then send your order to, you know, the, the, the people making the food. And the people making the food might be robots, and that might be the future <laughs> of fast food. So it's, it's a real interesting world we're living in, watching this transition. You know, you feel like we're all Luddites now. Genetically engineered food, probably, too. Uh, both of you might have might be surprised where this comment came from, but maybe you also heard it over the weekend. Um, this commentator said, U.S. universities are pursuing political agendas instead of excellence. That's the big I'm shocked. Let me get my selling salts. Okay. Well, no, but you'd be shocked. It, it came from Farid Zakaria uh, in a, uh, on CNN on Sunday. Okay, that is shocking. I didn't. Th that know shocked me. He came out with this, and I said, "Good for you." I said, <laughs> didn't, "Welcome, welcome to the train, Mister CNN." <laughs> I didn't realize CNN was doing a fact-based reporting now. And then another stat on Math America ranks 
an average, we're in 30th place globally as ranked by our peers. So our math skills are not up there with. I, uh, that one kind of bothers me. I remember when I was like in fourth or fifth grade, I, I heard that, that, you know, America was like 90th in the world on math and, 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 and reading, you know, and I was kind of disappointed and, you know, I've been, it, it's almost like the, the global warming alarmists, you know, like when I was growing up, they talked about the ozone layer and how we're all going to be dead by the year 2000. And by, you know, by the mid 1990s, there'd be no rainforest anywhere in the world at the current pace. And it, it's kind of like this doomsday thing. I, I don't understand what those stats are because yeah. if you look at, you know, the stock market, the United States of America is like 70% of the global market cap. Um, we we have something like 85 of the world's largest 100 companies. You know, the, the, these ideas that that we're behind on, on basic skills, I guess technically it could be possibly true, but then we've got something else in the water. Maybe it's the freedom, maybe it's the capitalism maybe it's just you know the isolation by being four thousand miles by water away from any any enemies that we we can be successful but but i i i i don't know that i put too much weight into any of those things because you know doomsdayers are always saying that we're we're falling behind and then you know fast forward four decades and they were wrong you know countries that have large populations always are behind right because the population is is huge it's diverse and i think the united states has the fourth largest population in the world I think that's where we rank. But but the fact yeah. of the matter is that, uh, you know, if you look at countries that have huge population bases, their ability to score highly on these uh, tests is, is not there. Whereas if you look at small countries like, uh, you know, Northern Europe has all these countries that, that, that don't have that many people, but, you know, have very high rankings. So... I think there's a lot more to be to, to be considered than just uh, you know how good the educational system is. Putin has just confirmed he's going to run for president in 2024. That's not a surprise, but globally, geopolitically, where do both of you think we're at right now? We have uh, the Middle East. Um, we have Ukraine, and uh, Zelensky is in Washington trying to get some funding. We have a change in leadership in Argentina. That's going to be really interesting. Will they dollarize? And Europe seems to be caught flat-footed in terms of being prepared for any, hopefully it won't happen, but if there was an escalation. Yeah, I'm going to start with Argentina. I just want to throw some cold water on that word, dollarize. <laughs> That's like you know all three of us saying that we want to be trillionaires like you have you have to get the dollars where are you going to get the dollars if you're argentina um so i'm sorry that it's 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 ambitious and if someone were to lend him the dollars you know but the the imf isn't certainly going to do it they that would go against their view of how economies should be rigged um i shouldn't say rigged but you know uh, structured and I don't think the United States is going to lend him the dollars because it's not our problem. So I that that that's that's not really realistic. Putin running for re-election. I know the the West is saying, um, you know, it's a fake election because he's not going to. You know, he might he might do crazy things like indict his opponent to to try to rig the election. So it's not a real election. But I, I wonder where he would learn that type of technique. Ukraine war not going good. Not going no. good for the West. No, I I I. I and the other interesting thing that Putin was welcomed with open arms in the United Arab Emirates. He had a, had camels in front of his cortege or entourage. He was like greeted like a hero. It's extraordinary. Putin ran in a fair election. He would be a, he'd be reelected. You know, there's no indication that the Russian people are unhappy with him. And it is evident that as this war goes on, he's getting stronger and Ukraine is getting weaker. Uh, he's got more support uh, from uh, countries around the world. 
he can actually get out of Russia now without fear of being arrested, uh, you know, by the police in The Hague, whoever they may be. Um, his his uh, linkage with uh, Iran, with North Korea, uh, you know, is is increased his uh, ability to fight the war, his ability to sell whatever he wants to uh, China and India is increasing his, uh, you know, cash inflow. Um, the, the people around him are making huge fortunes uh, from this war. Uh, they, they're only getting wealthier, as is Putin. They're only getting wealthier and wealthier from it uh, because they control the, the, the products that are created in Russia and sold, you know, you know, war products or what have you. It, it, it is not looking good at the moment uh, because Putin is only growing in strength uh, and the Ukraine is only weakening. Monthly Russian income from oil exports has doubled since April to more than 11 billion, with revenues in October at its highest since May 2022. So, so much for sanctions. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that sanctions, when you're sanctioning a global commodity exporter by reducing the amount on the global market where it's a marginally priced product, which means the marginal barrel sets the price, by definition, is almost going to always increase revenues for the target countries. If you wanted to sanction Russia and make it expensive for them to run this war, the very first thing you would do is encourage all your allies to increase drilling and allow increased drilling in the United States and flood the market with the commodities that Russia exports as a way of reducing their revenue. When you restrict product, you increase their revenue, and they don't have to produce as much to get that increased revenue. So we're doing the exact opposite thing. If we were trying to harm Russia, um, we, we would be producing a lot more oil rather than these fake sanctions. I mean, it's ridiculous. The The, the strategy is clearly not working, and you got to wonder what the real strategy is or what the game plan is, because it doesn't seem to be to actually defeat Russia. Well, Trump says he has the real game plan, drill, baby, drill. <laughs> that is the game plan. That yeah. should work. Yeah. Dick and Matt, we're out of time. We could have extended this, but we're out of time. But next week, we're coming up on episode 100. So we'll have a celebration. We might get in a few um, gems and our typical interesting fare. And until then, uh, episode 100, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.